All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, good morning, Vaughn Forrest. Uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that and make your way to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, let, me say, let me say hi to you again. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I would love to do that. I'm so, so grateful and humbled to have this chance to open God's word with you this morning. So uh, as you're turning to Hebrews 11, we are, uh, you heard it in the video. We are starting a brand new series, teaching series today called Misunderstood. And, uh, and I also, I want you to know this, that uh, this, this concept or even the idea for that, that's not, that's not original to me. About 15 years ago, I read a book by Pastor Larry Osborne, who pastors a church in San Diego. And uh, this book was called uh, 10 Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe. And so so actually somebody gave me that book. Um, I didn't ask for that book. And so I took that a little personal, to be honest. But um, anyway, uh, I read that book and it has really, really stuck with me and feel like uh, now more than ever, uh, what the concepts and ideas that are talked about in, in that book are, are really, really helpful uh, and relevant for our time. So let me encourage you uh, to, uh, if you would like to, you should order that. You should read that. Uh, it's a great resource for you, uh, for your group, your, your family. So, but here's the, the point. For a few weeks, uh, we're going to take some time, intentionally focus our minds and our hearts around this idea because there are phrases that enter into the Christian vocabulary, things that uh, are passed down, uh, whether it be from generation to generation or from Christian to Christian, and we believe them. Now, we are smart Christians. Uh, we, we are people who, we're not perfect, but we're doing our best to be Jesus followers, to do what the Bible asks us to do, to believe what Jesus has said. But there are, there are ideas that you and I believe we treat as canon, but simply they're not true. And another brief aside, the point of this series is not just for you to understand and that be the entire goal of the series. Like, yes, I want you to understand clearly the words of God and what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus, but it's more than just uh, a deeper understanding that we're going for. The reason that we're going to take some weeks and dedicate some of our time on Sunday morning to these ideas is because these aren't just ideas that are categorically or intellectually wrong, but they're dangerous. Because the side effects and the consequences of believing that God said something when in fact he didn't are grave and have lasting effect. If you don't believe me, you should see the opening scene of the Bible when in the original temptation from our accuser, Satan, the first thing he asks his, uh, God's children to, to consider is if God actually said that or did they misunderstand him. Today, we're going to circle around one thought, one idea, and it has to do with a, if you're a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is categorically necessary, and it's the idea of faith. Faith is, uh, briefly summed up, it is a, understood best in a single word, and that word is yet. The idea of faith can be summed up in that really short and simple word, yet, and you and I are totally familiar with the concept of yet. In fact, I think everybody, everybody in the room, everyone listening, uh, all, all people, regardless of age, stage of life, mobility, everyone knows about this word yet. You have used this word at some point, or your kids have used this word, because mine ask all the time, wherever we're going, the journey could be 15 minutes or 15 hours. They're going to ask, are we there 
yet, right? Teenagers ask, they go, has uh, she texted me back yet? Young parents wonder, is he asleep yet? Parents of teenagers ask, is he up yet? Uh, Adults ask, is this recession over yet? Your boss asks, are you done with that yet? Uh, And even older generations wonder, have the kids called back yet? But the word yet, while very short and simple, is so full of and pregnant with hope and desire and expectation because the word yet expresses and it implies that there is something. There is a condition. There is knowledge. There's, there's something that you're missing out on that you, you want to get in on. And this knowledge, this understanding, this state, once you get that, once you acquire that, then things will be a little more okay. Life will be simpler. It will be uh, better, it will be at least manageable or understandable. The word yet implies that where you're at now, where you live and breathe, how you currently understand life and your place in it, the word yet implies incompleteness. It implies brokenness. It implies unfinishedness and a desire for things to be better or fixed. So today's phrase, uh, our question that we're asking, did Jesus actually say that? Does the Bible really say that? Uh, Our phrase is this, faith fixes everything, or does it? Faith fixes everything. I am, by trade and education, I'm a pastor, and so I I have uh, relatively little marketable skill uh, to add uh, to the world. And so, uh, but at one point in my life, I did learn how to uh, put down hardwood flooring and how to lay carpet. And here's what they teach you in uh, carpet school. They teach you that the best way to uh, put down carpet is to make sure that you can't see the seams. Like, you don't want to see the seams of the carpet, where one piece begins and another piece ends. You want it all to look like, you know, one simple and, and clean product. And even that applies to like my style of of teaching God's word. Like I don't want to lay out the seams and show you like here's all of the ideas and I just want it to feel like this is one narrative or one story that you're understanding. But just to put all my cards on the table today, let me show you the seams of what I'm trying to accomplish because I think it should be helpful for you. I want you to know what faith is. We have to have an established working definition of what faith is. Is. Then I want to walk you through a few examples in Hebrews chapter 11 that kind of tease out and they illustrate what displays of faith look like. Then I want to show you and caution you against the dangers of misunderstanding and misapplying the idea of faith. And finally, I'm going to show you why faith is so necessary and it's so important. Hebrews chapter 11 is all about faith. In fact, if you were to look at your Bible and see that um, at the top of this chapter before the number 11, you have what's called a superscription. And what this does is it gives you a, a broad definition of here's what you're about to learn. This is a summary statement of what the entire chapter or this section of text is all about. And in my Bible, this, uh, this chapter of scripture, Hebrews 11 says, by faith. Hebrews 11 is all about faith. But before we get there, I want to be completely honest with you, just totally honest. And, uh, and, and I think it's important for you to know this about me. Um, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying or take this the wrong way. But in a lot of ways, um, it takes very little faith for me to be a Jesus follower. 
just to my day-to-day life. Like it takes, it takes not that much. Like if I were to, when I got home tonight and walk into my house and walk up to my daughter's bedrooms and just announce to them that I am abandoning my faith, I'm deconstructing, I'm, I'm walking away. If I were to do that, it would devastate them. So I have, I have an added consequence. I have, uh, I have an incentive to be a person of faith in my house because they love Jesus and they want a dad who loves Jesus. You know, uh, by the very nature of my profession, uh, I'm required to be a Christian. I'm required to do that. Like, put, you know, box number one on the application is, are you a Christian? Check, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a pastor. I work at a Christian institution. But it's more than that because you, you, you feel this. You live this too. This is true of you. Like many of you, your current, my current financial situation does not require me to get on my hands and knees and cry out and beg God to provide the next meal for my family. It's not where we're at. And that's not a prideful statement. I'm not boasting when I say that. That's just the reality that I live in. It's easy for me to talk about and think about and even study and explain the things of God and what it means to be a Christ follower and that not demand from me deep faith because it's the world I live in. I live in a world that is not entirely antagonistic toward the things of God. I don't experience a significant amount of persecution because of my faith on a daily basis. I just don't, and I don't think you do either. Now that day may come. There may be a day when it requires something more than just changing the relationship status online to say, yes, I'm a Christian. That day may come, but we're not there yet. I would describe what it means to be a person of faith, a Christian, in even just geographically and culturally where, where we are uh, today, this morning, that it's more, uh, it's more just in the air that we breathe. It's around. It's like the humidity. Like you, you can't see it, but you know it's there. Author Harrison Key, he describes what life is like as people of faith for many of us like this, that Christianity is less a religion than a weather system that it's something everybody lives inside. It's a condition of the atmosphere. And let me tell you why that's so dangerous. Because faith has incredible implications, but for you and I, the misunderstanding might be that it has little requirements. What does faith require of me? Faith is defined in the first verse of this chapter of faith in Hebrews. The first verse of Hebrews 11 says this. It gives us a great definition. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is God's word. But the Bible, Hebrews in particular, is not written by people or to people who for Christianity, living a life of faith, cost them little. It's not written in that context. The author of Hebrews is not writing as a comfortable Christian to comfortable Christians. What do I mean? 
I mean, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who they're struggling. They're fighting to maintain their faith in who God is and what God says. And it's hard because the people that they love the most, their family, their friends, their people, they're not so sure and they're abandoning this way of life. They're questioning whether or not this way of life was ever important or even really matters. These people that the author of Hebrews is writing to, they're answering God, or they're asking God really tough questions. Like they're, they're, a, they're asking God some questions like this. Why did this happen? And waiting for an answer. They're, they're asking God, what are you thinking? They're asking questions of themselves. Like, what, what, is, what is wrong with me? They started strong. These people had not just a heritage of it, but they had a story about being Jesus followers that began incredibly strong, incredibly fast. And then after a while, it just begins to fade into the background. Now, your world, my world, the culture we live in, while our level of persecution does not necessarily match that of the primary audience of this uh, chapter of Scripture, I think that we're asking some similar questions. I think that it's quite possible for someone who loves God and loves his word to ask questions like, God, what are you thinking? What were you thinking? Where were you? What is wrong with me? How did I end up like this? How did things get so messy? So if you've ever found yourself asking those questions, you're asking questions that people following Jesus have been asking for thousands of years. This idea or concept of faith, uh, before, we, uh, before we can answer, can it fix everything? Can it fix anything? I think first we need to define what faith is. And faith is measured in need, not knowledge. Faith has more to do with your need than your knowledge. When you follow Jesus around the Gospels, if you were to just follow him around in the first century, here's what you'd find. You'd find him in the lives of people. You'd follow him not just preaching sermons from afar, but having conversations face-to-face with people. In fact, in one of these scenarios, in fact, in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9, you see an, interact, an interaction between Jesus and a desperate dad. You find this this conversation happening where this dad has come to the end of himself, to the end of his rope. He is beyond desperate. He is borderline manic, and he's doing whatever it takes because his kid is really, really sick. Like the, the level of anxiety and angst that this dad is feeling right now, we'll call lobby of children's hospital. And so Jesus walks up and he has this conversation with this dad in Mark chapter nine. And the dad's telling Jesus all these things about his his child. He's saying, my son is mute. My son is demon possessed. My son is in pain because the demons that possess my boy, they cause him to do incredibly harmful things to himself. This guy, you can see that his, his eyes, he's not crying right now, but they're still red. Like the gray hair and the wrinkles are fresh and they're well earned. And he finds this new prophet who he has heard rumors of having great power and he does not know who else to turn to. And he finds Jesus teaching about what it means to follow God and what the gift of the Holy Spirit is for and how the kingdom of God is at hand. And he goes up to Jesus and he's like, can you help me? Can you do something? Jesus listens to this dad give the medical history of his son, which all parents hate doing. And Jesus asks a question. 
A rather off-putting question, if you ask me. After this guy has just riddled off all the conditions that his son is dealing with, Jesus pauses and he asks, so how long has he been like this? I have no idea why. I do not know why Jesus asked that question in Mark chapter nine. I don't know if he was looking deep into this man's eyes and deciding if whether or not he was asking from a sincere heart. I don't know if he was trying to determine if he had room for one more miracle before he needed to move on to the next place. I don't know if he was praying, but he pauses and he asks a question. How long has he been like this? And the dad responds exactly like a dad. This is conjecture. It's not in the scripture, but I sense an eye roll because here's the next thing the man said to Jesus. Okay, if you can do anything, Mark 9, 22, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. How long has he been like, if you can do anything, just do it. Get it over with. If not, don't make me waste my time. Let's just move on. And Jesus responds, I love this. I, I can hear it in his voice, how Jesus responds. Because the man has just said, if you can do anything to the Son of God, if you can do anything to a member of the Trinity, if you can do anything, Jesus responds, if you can. Like, are you, if, if who, me? If you can. And then he says this, all things are possible for one who believes. Love that gentle and compassion and merciful. And the man responds with what I think is the greatest summary of what uh, faith in God, I think is the greatest summary of any statement in the Bible. And this is what he says back to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. I, I hear you. I believe, yes, you are who you say you are but I can't get the rest of the way there on my own. So can you help me? Uh, Pastor Ray Ortland says about this passage that faith is not my bringing the great questions of existence under my control. Faith is turning to the Lord in his all sufficiency for my desperate need to hear and receive what he has to say to me. Let me translate that statement for us this morning. Faith is about acknowledging your need. It's about admitting that you're needy, acknowledging your need, and then bringing your need to the only person, to the only being who can do anything about it. Faith is not, church, faith is not getting all the answers. Faith is not about being able to accurately predict the outcomes of every situation, conversation, relationship, and deal. It's not about that. It's not about how much you can know. You know what faith also isn't? It's not about a disconnected stoicism that says, I don't care, where you're disconnected and you're unaffected and you just pull back. Faith is about recognizing and admitting that the outcome of your life is more dependent on Jesus than you'd actually like to admit. And faith is about slowly but surely releasing control of the people and events that you care about the most. That's what faith is. Let me say that one more time. Faith is about coming to the sobering realization that you have needs. And despite yourself, you're willing to believe that Jesus can do something about them.
That's what faith is. And faith is all over the Bible. And the displays of faith are all over Scripture. In fact, Hebrews 11 gives us lots of examples. And we see that not just faith being the, we're more about need than knowledge, but faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is not the absence of fear, but faith is the display of obedience. Faith is not about you not being afraid. Faith is about actually acting in an obedient way. Here's some examples. This is what the scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 11. So there's the story of Noah. You know this story. You've told the story to your kids. You are absolutely familiar with the story of Noah and the ark and God's instructions to this man. God comes to Noah and says, build an ark because I'm going to flood the earth. And Noah says back, what's a flood? Great. You're going to do what? I don't understand. You know, I did some homework. I did a lot of uh, like research on um, the story of Noah and why it would be such a weird thing for God to ask him to build a boat. And you know that, like you know this, like you've heard this story. People have preached this much better than I can. And so you know that it hadn't rained for a long time, that Noah had maybe never seen it rain. Do you know that commentators, people who are a lot smarter than me and have studied the Bible a lot longer than me, they're split about 50-50. Not just that it hadn't rained for a long time, but that it had never rained that rain had never fallen on the earth. And God says to Noah, I'm gonna flood everything through rain. And Noah's like, sure. But he says, this is Hebrews eleven seven, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Keep going, Abraham Abraham is the most unlikely candidate for being used by God in the Old Testament. Abraham is an idolater who's the son of an idolater, and he is sitting in the sun in Ur, minding his own business. And God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you more kids than there are stars in the sky. So I need you to go. And Abraham says, where? And God goes, just go. And so Abraham just takes off. And every wife in the room is like, that's how my husband drives everywhere. But Hebrews eleven eight, this is what it says about Abraham. This idolater, this, this unlikely candidate that God chose. Verse eight, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. But it's not just him. His wife is brought into this. Later, Abraham's wife, Sarah, is told that she, although barren, and this is a big deal in the Old Testament, because to be barren is not just to suffer the cruelty of infertility, but to be barren is to be on the brink of poverty because there is no system of taking care of older and aging parents in the Old Testament. And so to not have children meant that you were probably looking at a life of poverty. On the brink of this stage, with no family to support her and old age looming, Sarah is promised a son. Verse 11 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. You know what all these examples have in common with one another? Obedience. They obeyed. Is there fear? Is there rational fear? 
is there what I'm about to do makes absolutely no sense? Yes, it's there. It's absolutely there. But in every case, faith is put on display by obedient action. Noah, by faith. Abraham, when he was called. Sarah, considered him faithful. And boy, do we love those stories as Christians. We love them because maybe we're at a point in our life where we need to be reminded that sometimes life doesn't make sense and we just need faith. We love the idea of having a question that needs to be answered and thinking that if we just bring it to God, he will answer it with clarity and certainty and quickly. We love those stories as Christians because it makes faith seem doable. But what's possible, if not probable, when looking at those examples, is to think that faith is just about an action that's going to bring immediate gratification. It is not. That's not what faith is. Because faith is not a formula. Faith is not a formula. I have told you many times that I have, I have two daughters. My youngest is fascinating to me. She asks the most incredible questions, if not uh, off-putting sometimes. So Wednesday afternoon, she and I were hanging out together, and this is the question that she asked, unprovoked. I didn't ask for this. She just did it. She goes, Dad, what's the saddest you've ever been? Now, I'm like, what happened today? You know, she goes, what's the saddest you've ever been? That's an easy answer for me. So when, uh, when I was younger, I served at a church in the Atlanta area, and uh, we had some students come, and one of them in particular, he came and decided, he gave his life to Jesus, decided to be baptized, and so I got a chance to baptize uh, this, this student and then also his sister. And so showing up to the baptism was their dad, who didn't really attend church and didn't really know if he was like, you know, if this was okay, but it's an important moment for his family, so he showed up too. Uh, later, I got to be a part of his conversion and his story and then watch him be baptized. And this guy, his name was Tom, and Tom was hilarious because he would walk out of church on a Sunday morning sometime and go, I have no idea what any of that was about. Like, I just, I don't get it because, you know, if you think about what we do on Sunday mornings, if you've never experienced this before, it's a little different. I mean, but for Tom, he was just curious. He wasn't he wasn't putting anything down. He was just admitting that he, he didn't know everything. So he asked me, he said, would you just please meet with me and like teach me the Bible? Like just walk with me through the Bible. And so we met on Thursday mornings at 6 a.m. for breakfast at IHOP for like a year and a half, just walking through the Gospel of John and then on into Acts. I will never forget one time we were having breakfast one day and he looked up and he, we were talking about this passage in John and he goes, well, of course they killed him. Who says that? And I love that. I love that like curiosity and passion for just can't, I can't believe that God gave us the Bible. Um, I was much younger and uh, Tom was a little older than me. And so I didn't know, but Tom made, this is so sweet. He made me his emergency contact at work. And so one day I'm sitting in my office uh, writing a sermon and I get a call and it's, uh, hey, this is so-and-so from uh, the office, 
Tom has you listed his, as his emergency contact, and he's been taken to the hospital, and you need to go now. And so, you know, I call Lane, and we drive to the hospital, and I got there first, which was a mistake, because I was the first person to find out that Tom had died before he hit the floor. And then his wife walked in, and I had to tell her, and then we had to go back to their house. And, and we had to tell their kids. And the reason that that is a sad, that's not a story, that's my life. The reason that's so sad, and that's the saddest I've ever been, is because I could not believe God would do it like that. Like that made me so furious. Because I thought, here's this guy who has lived the like all but the last 18 months of his life, then he gives his life to the Lord. He's crushing it at home. He is devouring scripture. He is ferocious for the faith. He's showing up and he's serving at his kid's church. Like now you kill him? Like what is with you? Like I had, I had, on, I was pulling my chair up to God's table and I had serious questions. Because I thought just sovereign, all-knowing, you've got to be kidding me. It's the saddest I've ever been. And the reason that, that it was so sad is because I thought something could have been done to prevent this. Something, something could have been said, an injunction should have happened, and this could have been avoided. It should not be that you have to go and tell kids that their dad's dead and the last 18 months were the best 18 months, but the previous 13 years, that's the majority of your memories of him. That's not right. That felt wrong to me. And church, look at me. That's what's so dangerous about this idea that faith fixes everything. Because in that moment, being told, you just need to have faith, Brett, wouldn't have fixed anything. What I mean is that you are going to live long enough. And if you do as a Jesus follower, you're gonna have prayers go unanswered. You're gonna be told no or nothing. You're gonna have to endure tragedy and hardship because you're gonna get cancer or somebody you love is. Your child is gonna make a horrible decision or a series of them. Your spouse will do the unthinkable. Your job will go away overnight. Man, we live and breathe in a fallen world. You don't have to look very far for evidence that I'm right. And if all you have in those moments, the only thing that you're told is you just need faith. You just gotta have a little more faith. You gotta remember to have faith in God. One of two things is going to happen to you, if not both. First, you're gonna get so discouraged. You will feel totally discouraged. You'll turn in on you. You'll go inward. You'll get in your head. You'll blame you. You'll put blame where it doesn't belong. And you will get bitter. And your whole story for the rest of your life will be resentment after resentment because you will be so discouraged. If only, if only, I had more faith. And if it's not that one, it's that you're gonna get disillusioned. And this is scary. Because you're, it's, so, it's so easy 
It's at, it's literally, it's at your fingertip. Because you will scroll from pastor to pastor in expensive sneakers telling you that you just need to speak it and then you can lean into it and then live it. That if you just have faith enough, then you can move mountains and you feel crushed. And in that moment, when your crazy faith doesn't lead to your desired outcome, you'll call all of it a fraud. You're like, if he's a liar, they're all liars. It's all, it's all made up. It's all a game. Then you'll beat yourself up that you were ever dumb enough to believe it in the first place. You'll be discouraged or you'll be disillusioned or probably both. The danger of making faith a formula is that it sets you up. It's a setup for disappointment and resentment. And the reason I know that faith doesn't always lead to instant gratification is because Hebrews 11 keeps going. It does give you more than a dozen examples of people displaying faithful obedience. And here's what the scriptures say that they got as a reward. Verse 37 of Hebrews 11, what they get? They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Sawn is the past tense of saw. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went around in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Does faith fix everything? Hardly. Is it a formula to be worked out? Clearly not. Or was it, was it just them? Was there, was there something wrong with them? No, because Hebrews 11.38 says, the world was not worthy of them. So if faith doesn't fix everything, what makes it such a big deal to begin with? What makes it so attractive? Why is it so necessary? I'll tell you, because faith is how we trust Jesus shows up in two ways. First is by providing a way for you to be saved. It's how you trust Jesus. There was a man named Saul, the accuser. Acts 7 says that he went around ravaging the church, killing Christians. Saul, the accuser, is on his way to Damascus one day when a great light shines all around him and a voice from heaven cries out and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That was the voice of Jesus. This moment on the Damascus road so profoundly affects this man that the entire course of his life changes. He goes from being a ravager of the church to a church planter. He plants churches all over. And in one city he plants was a city called Ephesus. And this is what he wrote to his friends in Ephesians 2.8. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Faith is the instrument through which God uses to get grace into your life. Faith is how you get grace down in there. Faith is not just a one-time event though. Salvation, instant, in the moment. Salvation's a one-time event, never again, once and for all. But faith is not a one-time event. Faith is an overtime event, an ongoing, here I am, I'm gonna have to trust you again, I guess, kind of faith. So it provides salvation. Do you know why it's so necessary for us, family? It gives us sanity. Faith gives us sanity. 
So let's imagine that this is not you, but somebody you know. Uh, uh, life on the outside looks decent and maybe even somewhat attractive. You're not in the pit, you're not destitute, you're not picking up the pieces, but there's something else. Because if you were to be honest, you would say that humming just below the surface is a 90 mile per hour engine of anger and anxiety. I mean, you don't want to, you don't like that, that's true of you, but it's all you can do to not snap at your kids. It's all you can do to not let that person who is less than kind to you know. You're short, you're snappy. You are not slow to speak. You are not slow to anger. Can I just tell you, like if that describes your life right now, that is not a product of grace. That is not what it means to live a life with fruit of the Spirit. If you are feeling the weight of having to solve everything for everybody, if you're beyond exhausted, can I just gently suggest to you that it might not be that God's the problem. Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he tells us that he has given us the glory that God has given to him. Jesus reminds us that we are created for union with God. In other words, Jesus is not the problem here. That tension is somewhere else. There's something that is, while not all the way evil, it is keeping you from enjoying what John Eldridge describes as the river of life that restores you, renews you, surrounds you, and carries you. The invitation to give all your worries and all your cares to God because He cares about you. That invitation is the invitation to a life of faith. It's a life of sanity because this world is crazy. This is what it means to trust Jesus. And, and uh, other times, in a different time, my youngest daughter, she, she likes to be carried on my shoulders, likes to ride on my shoulders. And, and when she does, uh, she like holds onto my hair and it drives me crazy. It's like reins, like on a horse. Like she treats it, treats it like she will not let go hair, head, neck. Like she's just holding on. Why are you doing that? I don't want to fall off. She is so convinced that if she doesn't hold on, she's going to fall off. And like, not only does she hold on, she's convinced that it's her, like her being convinced. She, she believes in her belief that that's what's keeping her holding on to me. Having no idea that uh, she can hold on, she cannot, she cannot hold on, she can let go, she can lean back. She's not going anywhere. Why? Because I hold her. She doesn't hold me, I hold her. The reason she doesn't fall church is because being secure in Christ is not about having faith in faith. It's not about how much or how strongly you believe it. It's not about your ability to trust or hold on or keep on believing. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in Jesus. Faith doesn't fix everything 
but Jesus changes everything. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, I, hope, I hope that's true. I hope that everything that your son Jesus said was so true. Because if it isn't, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we're going to make, I don't know how we're going to stay sane in this world. I don't know how we're going to find eternal rest for our souls, but I believe that it is. I have faith that everything you said in your Bible is true, that you weren't kidding around. And that for those of us who our, our next step of faith needs to be our first step, where we say, God, I've come to the end of myself and I need you to step into my life and save me because I am doing a bad job of saving me. I pray we'd have the courage to do that. For the rest of us, we need to recognize the fact that we are doing a bad job keeping ourselves sane. But that what you offer is a deep and refreshing breath. God, help us to lean further into trusting you. You're so worthy of being trusted, God. Would you give us faith in you? Help us in Jesus' name.